the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Mark Batterson is back on the podcast. I'm so glad to have him. And his first appearance on the podcast many years ago, we talked about his writing process. And I know that's like 500 episodes ago, so most of you haven't heard it. The podcast was much smaller when it first started. I thought we'd redo that conversation. So we added some new things and we're talking about where to get ideas from, uh, a non-anxious curiosity, and how to be true to your voice when others want to change it, and a whole lot more. I think you're going to love this episode. It's brought to you by the Preaching Cheat Sheet. You know, I've got something for you. If you are preaching on a regular basis and you want to figure out a way to be clearer and make it faster, go to preachingcheatsheet.com. Say that five times fast, preachingcheatsheet.com. Download your free resource. And by ServeHQ, onboarding new volunteers is tough. ServeHQ wants to make it better. So if you want to simplify things, go to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. So Mark Batterson is a New York Times bestselling author. We do talk about his exact writing process. He is also the lead pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., one church in multiple locations. They've also got uh, Ebenezer's Coffee House, the Miracle Theater, the D.C. Dream Center, and the Capitol Turnaround. We do talk a little bit about real estate here and what they've done in D.C., a highly expensive market is incredible. And he is a New York Times bestselling author of 23 books, including The Circle Maker, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day, Whisper, and Win the Day. And we're going to talk about his latest book as well. So pastors, we all know how difficult it can be to keep your sermons feeling fresh and relevant, particularly when every week you got to produce a new one, right? I did that for over 25 years. So whether you're hitting writer's block or you're trying to put the finishing touches, clarity is your friend. And if you want to speed things up a little bit, not the like digestion process, but just like you want to get the mechanics down of excellent preaching, I've got a 10-step preaching cheat sheet. After decades of preaching, it's the system I use, and I want to give it to you for free. So you can start using it as early as today to prep for this coming weekend. So to start transforming your preaching, go to preachingcheatsheet.com. That's preachingcheatsheet.com. You can download your copy of the Preaching Cheat Sheet absolutely free. And onboarding new volunteers, not easy. A confusing or complicated process can lead to people slipping through the cracks, and you don't want that as a church leader. So a clear and simple onboarding process will make sure that new people are prepared, they're motivated, and you know what? If there's a crisis for 2023, it's finding volunteers. So let me recommend ServeHQ to you. They're the easy-to-use automation tool for church leaders that makes onboarding new volunteers and church members fast, easy, and consistent. You can create automatic sequences that enroll learners in online courses and send time messages and alert church staff members of follow-up tasks too. So if you want to check it out, you can do it right now by heading to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. Well, I am so glad that we had this conversation round two on Mark's writing process. If you've ever thought about writing, if you are writing on a regular basis, whether that's for print or whether that's for the web or whether you are preaching or communicating, this is going to be a save the episode and come back to it again and again kind of episode. By the way, we also have show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 565 if you want to dive in more there. We include transcripts and more. And without much further ado, my conversation with Mark Batterson. 
Well, Mark Patterson, you've got to be one of the top repeat guests ever on this podcast. That says a lot, says a lot about our friendship, about your contribution to everything, but welcome back. Hey, thanks, Gary. Love hanging out, be it in person uh, or via via AirPods. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Always best in person, but AirPods are going to work. So um, I want to circle back. You were a guest on episode 32, which is 500 plus episodes ago. And it's an interview that you reference back a lot. I reference back a lot, but obviously we didn't have quite the momentum then that we have now. And uh, some of these questions, for those of you who have been around since episode one, you're going to recognize it's the first time I've ever done this, but I'm going to re-ask them because we talked about your approach to writing. You have sold millions of copies of books, Mark. You have written dozens of books. What, what is this one? Please, sorry, thanks. What, what is that number what? Yeah, this is book 23. And it, it's funny, Carrie, it might be the simplest one. I don't want to tip too many cards, but you only need to be good at three things. If you're good at please, <laughs> sorry, and thanks, you're thanks. good to go. Your marriage, your workplace. Done. Is the interview over? <laughs> yeah. Inter thank you so much, Mark. We appreciate it. You'll be back for round seven next time. Um, there we go. No, you know what? It's one of those things where like, think about that for a minute, 23 books. That's like a lot of books. And so you were often referencing back to that interview. I would often reference back to you, uh, back to that interview. And I thought, well, let's update it and let's do the 2023 version of it. So Let's start here. 23 books, preaching every weekend, been at this for decades. Where do your ideas come from? Where do you get your ideas? Well, they, they really come from everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Good answer. I, I, have, I have two rules of life. Uh, one, everyone is fighting a battle I know nothing about. And that gives mm. me an extra measure of grace towards people. But the second one, Carrie, is everyone is my superior in some way in that I learn of them. So every person I meet, I'm getting ideas. Uh, wow. I rarely meet with someone that I don't have my journal handy mm. and I'm writing something down. So to me, people are books with skin on them. Uh, but then I'll, I'll flip that and say, you know, I read 3,000 books before writing one. And part of that is because writing is not a natural gifting. And I think I need to say that up front. You know, when I was in grad school, took an aptitude test, showed a low aptitude uh, for writing. In other words, whatever you do, do don't write books. Don't <laughs> inflict that on people. But I love the theory of compensation, that sometimes what we perceive to be uh, disadvantages are actually disguised advantages. So um, I'll, I'll make this short and sweet. I could not speak extemporaneously as a young communicator. I had to write everything out word for word, and I saw it as a weakness, Carrie. Hmm. But if you write every sermon out word for word for 13 years, maybe just maybe God is helping you with your writing craft. And so I didn't even know it, but what I perceived to be a speaking weakness became a writing strength. And, uh, and so that theory of compensation, it's an Alfred Adler idea that amazing how many artists have optical anomalies, how many composers have degenerative ear conditions, uh, uh, 
uh, I think 35% of small business owners, a study found, are dyslexic, which all of that yes. is very confusing. But, but it's this idea that um, we all have a strong hand. And God's given you those gifts, but we have a weak hand. And last, last time I checked, God's power is made perfect in weakness. So hmm. all, all of that to say writing is not a natural gifting. So I didn't just read 3,000 books. I reverse engineered them and I figured out what, what people who write that I love the way they write, what do they do? How does Malcolm Gladwell do what he does? How does an mm-hmm. A.W. Tozer mm-hmm. do what he does? And, and then you find your own voice, but you, you learn some of the craft, uh, I guess, the hard way. So that, that's a little bit of the backdrop. So why 3,000 books? Are you naturally a reader? Was that a discipline? How, how did that work? I read maybe three books until my senior year of college that weren't signed <laughs> by a professor. I know. And then I, I, get it. I, I read an 800-page biography on Albert Einstein. And I fell in love with reading. And by the Mm. way, Einstein said, never lose a holy curiosity. And that Mm. combination of two words, I've always loved. So when you talk about ideas, I'm always on the lookout. Like I just, so it's people, it's it's books. And and I remember reading early on, Carrie, that the average author puts about two years of life experience into a book. So I figured if I read 250 books, and I, I was pastoring 19 people at the time, so I had, had some, some time, time on my hands. Uh, if I read 250 books, and by the way, didn't have an iPhone, no social media, wasn't blogging, none of that. Like I'm that old. Uh, so I had plenty of time to read. I figured if I read 250 books, I gained 500 years of life experience, but I'm only one year older. Hmm. So when people ask how old I am, I sometimes just have fun and about 10,000 in book years. In book years, about 10,000 <laughs> years old. That's fantastic, Methuselah. Um, <laughs> would would love to, okay, so curiosity. Let's talk about that because it's interesting. A lot of time has passed since that first interview. You're still relentlessly curious. Are you, and I find most people naturally become cynical and closed. In other words, it would be very interesting for you to be the dispenser of answers, not the asker of questions at this stage in your life. What keeps you curious and your notebook open? The more you know, the more you know how much you don't know. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians 8 to, to, he who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> so there, there's this... Um, curiosity towards all of life that I think all truth is God's truth. I I think sacred and secular is a false dichotomy to me. Uh, In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Those sound waves are still creating galaxies at the outer edge of the universe. So everything that we see was once said by God. So Carrie, I'm sitting in a class on immunology at the University of Chicago. I'm a freshman and I'm at the University of Chicago Hospital Center. And I doubt my professor even believed in God, but gave this lecture on hemoglobin. You know, it's the protein that in red blood cells that delivers oxygen to the rest of the body. And I remember walking out of that class, literally praising God for hemoglobin. Uh, and, and just thinking to myself, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm. And I just, I started reading 
everything from history to science, astrophysics, neurology, just started reading voraciously. And and I want to say, you know, in a lot of those fields, I know enough to be dangerous. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm not enough, claiming right? any degree of expertise. But, um, you know, when you understand neurology, you can read John 9, this healing of the man born blind and understand that there was no synaptic pathway between the optic nerve and visual cortex in the brain. This is synaptogenesis. This, mm. And that's why they say we've never heard of any such thing because it, it is a neurological miracle. So I, I just... I believe in a God who exists outside the four dimensions of space-time, and he's so much bigger than our four-dimensional understanding. He's not going to fit in the logical constraints of our left brain, and so I think what we have to do is just continue to grow into, I I, I think, well, it's the C.S. Lewis um, Aslan and Lucy conversation, right? That, that Lucy says, uh, you're bigger, Aslan. And Aslan says, no, you're just older. Uh, mm. And it's this idea that the older and older we get, hopefully the bigger and bigger God gets. Uh, and so come let us magnify the Lord together. And, and I think to me, every ology is a branch of theology. So I, I, theology is my basis. And by the way, my ground zero is Isaiah 55, is the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, astrophysicists would say the co-moving distance of the universe is 93 billion light years. And so I think what, what I'm trying to say is your best thought on your best day is at least 93 billion light years short of how good and how great God is. So I, I yeah, I'll stop right there. Well, that's good. Now, do you have any habits or disciplines that fuel your curiosity? And I'll tell you why, because we've talked a couple times on this podcast where you haven't been in the best season. I mean, you went through COVID leading a church like everybody else did. I remember that conversation well. You were tired. I remember somewhere around maybe the end of book 19, 20, you told me, I can't remember whether it was on mic or off mic, like, I don't know whether I got another one in me. Like, usually they flow. When you're in a depleted or discouraged state, does that impact your curiosity? And if so, how do you get it back? Uh, it does. And mm. I, I think um, the, the check engine light has come on quite a few times in recent years. Like you don't, you don't mature beyond temptation. You don't mature yeah. beyond trouble. You don't, you don't mature beyond any circumstance. So, you know, we, we were in a, uh, we're 50 million into a building project here on Capitol Hill. <laughs> like, I mean, you can't lead that kind of charge and not feel the weight of that. And, and then, you know, Laura has had two bouts with cancer. You can't walk through that and not feel it. Um, so, and then COVID, we went in a year and two weeks, not able to gather. So when, when 1500 people are gone, when you come back and gather, like, where did they go? And, mm. uh, where do we go mm. from here? And so I think what, what I did carry was, uh, I got some counseling cause I realized I needed to grieve that there was actual loss. Uh, 
And mm-hmm. so um, worked with a couple of different counselors. And since we're on the topic, uh, in that most recent counseling session, uh, the counselor brought up Dr. Murray Bowen, kind of pioneered family system therapy. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about being a non-anxious leader. Edwin mm-hmm. Friedman wrote a book about it. But my counselor brought up that, that Dr. Bowen actually added the word curiosity. It's a non-anxious curiosity that, that is one mm. key to leadership. So in other words, when, when there is someone who is maybe um, taking issue with something I write or say or do, um, I, I want to be curious. Why? Wow. What, what, huh? What is it that, um, you know, all of us are a combination of adaptive strategies that how we got attention, <laughs> how mm. we dealt with conflict in our family of origin. Um, all, all of us are complicated adaptive strategies, but I've, I've found that when I lead from a place of non-anxious curiosity, that's a different, different place. And I, and I will say this, there's a greater willingness 27 years into pastoring to admit I'm wrong. I, mm. I, I am wrong so often. Um, you, Carrie, you, you know, we make 52, 48 decisions where it's almost a coin flip oh, and yeah. you're, you're not mm-hmm. going to get that right every time. So I think oh, no. just the willingness to be wrong, maintaining a non-anxious curiosity, I think is pretty critical. And so somehow mm. I was able to regain that. Um, during some tough, uh, tough seasons. Well, and you know, I think, I think you help link it to self-care, right? Like not grieving your losses, not processing the pain, the disappointment, the hurt would probably lead you to a different place. And just for those of you who haven't met Mark, one of my favorite things about Mark is generally speaking, you're always up. You always find the bright side and it's incredibly energizing to be around energetic people who bring a curiosity to life. So you're meeting with Books with Skin On, also known as People. You're reading vociferously. You mentioned a notebook. How do you capture ideas? Because I think a lot of us are exposed to things that could be really great fodder for a message, a book, whatever. But we, we don't capture the idea. We don't write it down. Or we write it down and we can't find it two years later. What, what are you doing to catalog and record your ideas? Yeah, this this is fun because it's a very practical uh, methodology that I use. I don't know where I came up with it, but I don't have a photographic memory and I don't mm. read fast. So I, I want to say that. Um, but somehow I have the ability to remember the book in which I read something. It's weird. And I can mm. usually remember kind of where it was on the page. But there, there are kind of five levels that, yeah. that when I read a book, I never read without a pen in my hand. And so level one is a simple underline. Level two is a circle. I circle it. Level three is an asterisk in the margin. Uh, level four is an upper dog ear. And mm. level five is a lower dog ear. So I can go back through a book and lower dog ear read it in like three minutes. Yeah. I can upper dog ear read it in you know, five minutes. So it, it, I can go back um, and I, I never, our, our staff kind of laughs at me because I love you too much to loan you any of my books. I love you too much. 
because if it's worth reading, Carrie, it's uh-huh. worth owning. And so uh, I, I not I guess a lending one, library. No, one area where I'm a little selfish is don't touch my books. I, I in fact, keep them where they are on the shelf because I need to be able to go find them. Oh, that's great. Do you still use the massive Word document that you used over the years? I thought that was fascinating. Can you explain that? I Every sermon, and this only dates back to maybe 2001, hmm. um, so not all the way back to 96, but uh, yeah, I've got a, a document with every sermon goes into it, and then I can, I can search by word, and, and this takes a minute when you have a couple of decades of sermons, but I can go back and generally uh, find an old story that I told uh, 12 years ago or find um, uh, a joke that I told seven years ago. And I, you know, you, you got to find the most distinctive word in that story to search. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually you'll find it. And so uh, you know, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said the longest pencils, pencil, uh, shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. And mm. so I, that's why I journal. That's why I take notes in books. Um, and that's why I kind of catalog and hang on to things. And it allows me to go back and, and find it. How long would that document be now in pages? Do you have any idea? I I do not know. <laughs> millions massive, and man. millions of what the the average book carry um at, at your best what was how, mm. how many what was the word count? That was about 57,000 words. Yeah, at your yeah. best. Yep. So I you know when the day the circle maker a few of those are probably 60 to 65,000 in a pit with a line on a snowy day I think was only 42,000 but nah. If you add up the words, um, I mean, it is, it's millions of Of words words at this point, but (laughs) it allows me to go back and kind of redig the ancient wells, so to speak. So are all of your manuscripts for books in that Word document as well, sermons and books, or is that a separate file? I, I, I search those separately. Those are separate, separate files. Um, yeah. What a great idea. Um, what process do you follow for writing a book or is there more than one? I mean, you've got 23 reps on that. Uh, that's a lot of books. Many of some of which have gone on to become New York times bestsellers, right? So I'm curious what your process is for writing. Well, I bet there's a lot of people listening. In fact, probably 81% if the stats are right, who want to write a book, uh-huh. uh, who have not, written one. So let, let me start with that first book. Uh, you got to give yourself a deadline. And so I leveraged my 35th birthday as a book deadline because I was getting more and more frustrated that, you know, I couldn't seem to tie off the umbilical cord and finish a book. And so you, you got to give yourself a deadline on that first one. Um, now, a couple of things that I've done over the years, for, for the record, you know, I, I preach on the weekend about half of the weekends here at yeah. National Community Church. So I knew that if I was going to write books, I needed to have a teaching team. And, and that's been one of the greatest gifts to our church because then you get 
uh, different Enneagram numbers, different Myers-Briggs letters, different ethnicities, genders, and it, and it allows people to hear communicators uh, that are slightly different, which I, I think is actually a healthy and holy thing. Well, and you would have been uh, ahead of the curve on that too, right? If you were doing that 20 years ago, like people have adopted teaching teams, but that would have been a little bit on the early adoption side. Yeah. Maybe. And we kind of backed into it. So I think all of the benefits I discovered after the fact, it, it was probably more just, I can't write a book a year if I don't have, you know, X number of weeks. So mm-hmm. I would study on average, Carrie, and, and this might be, I, I, I like to do the math. So when we had, you know, 20 people, a half hour message equals 10 hours of collective time. And so if it's not the greatest message in, in the world, I only wasted 10 hours. But when you start getting into the hundreds and thousands of people, uh, you know, I, I can't even remember what it is now. But every time I preach, I'm cognizant that this is months and months of collective time. And so I'm going to put 25 or 30 hours into my prep. Well, that goes into a sermon but when I'm not preaching, I, I can take 25, 30 hours and translate that into a chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. So it's really about time management and you know delegating things that other people can do at least 80% as good as you can, and then really focusing my energy on the writing piece. And so I, I will add this. I, I, use, I continue to use my birthday, not as a deadline. Now it clicks me into writing season. And so Mm. I'll usually get away for two or three days, begin to frame out a book and get some writing under my belt. And and then uh, I do less preaching during those writing seasons. And I usually write until about Super Bowl Sunday. So about three Mm. months. And I'm researching during the year. I'm collecting thoughts and ideas. and, And sometimes a book comes out of a sermon series more often than not now a series will come out of a book. And, right. and by the way, I, I, I hope it's okay for me to say this, but I, Laura and I decided about 10 or 12 books ago that we're going to give a copy of that book to everybody who attends our church. I want you family. to talk about that. Yeah, I've, I've thought that is fantastic. And I, I just, I, I felt like it's really important that like in part for some integrity reasons that we we aren't trying to make a buck here. To me, Carrie, and you know my heart, a book sold is not a book sold. A book sold is a prayer answered. I, I have a prayer team that prays, that put these books into the right hands at the right time. And so I really genuinely see a book as a prayer answered. But I, I found that God has a way of blessing those books when we just are generous uh, from the get go. And so, and if it's a good book, Carrie, the word of mouth is going to take care of itself. And, and there is a law of reciprocity that when you gift a book, if someone loves it, I bet they buy one for a family member. So mm-hmm. there's a ripple effect. Um, and there's, there is, uh, some method to the madness, but we, we like starting out by gifting uh, a few thousand copies before we sell one. So I love that. And uh, when I was uh, still on the teaching team at Connexus, we did that with one of my books. And that was largely your example. I'm not so much involved uh, on the teaching team anymore. But I'm very interested uh, 
first of all, that gets rid of all the conflict of interest. When you stand up there and it's like, buy my book, I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, I would rather give the book than make people buy it, particularly if you're in that fiduciary relationship of being their pastor. It can feel manipulative, coercive, profiteering, all of the above. So I love it. But I imagine there's a lot of people going, okay, Mark, that's great. You have a New York Times bestselling book. You can afford to do that now. I imagine 10, 12 years ago when you started that, was that a financial stretch for you? And how did you navigate that? Because for a lot of pastors, they're like, I might go broke if I tried something like that. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. And, and this is, it's, you always feel this internal tension when you share things like this, Carrie. Okay. But I, I hope it, I hope it models something that, you know, when I, when I signed that first book deal and it was very modest, uh, those first four books, I mean, I uh-huh. just couldn't believe anybody was going to give me a dime right. to advanced. write a book. Wow. This um, is crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I, no complaints, but with every book contract we've signed, our goal was to increase what we give away. So, you know, you, you start with a tithe, you double tithe, you get to 50-50, but our ultimate goal uh, and this is no secret, is to reverse tithe. We want to live off of 10% of our income and give 90%. So we, uh, by faith, created a, a foundation, a trust. And before we signed a deal that was worth saying much about, we had already, by faith, established a mechanism that we're going to be generous and we're going to try to give away as much as we can. So that really was some of the heart behind it. Um, and I think God has a way of honoring that. So, uh, yeah, there, there are Enough things said. there. Yes. Enough said. Yep. That's yep. fair. That's fair. Yep. Um, and I think, I think you're right. Sometimes it's not like, well, I have all this. I can give it away. It's like, no, I'm going to give. And then, yeah, there is a reciprocity there that I think is hard to deny. Um, so do you start with an idea for a book? Do you start with an outline? Do you start with five competing ideas? Break down, you, you mentioned outlining a book, break down the, the writing process a little bit more for a book. Oh, and I've got to ask you yeah. too, just real quick. When's your birthday? Is it in the fall? Uh, November 5th. November 5th. So November through the Super Bowl Sunday is writing season. Yep. Okay. Yep. So knowing yep. that this is three months, where do you start November 5th? Yeah. I always start with an organizing metaphor. And I would say this, whether someone is uh, speaking or writing, Jesus was the master of metaphor. And without a metaphor, it's kind of hard to package truth. Uh, And so, uh, you know, for Chase the Lion, for example, you you have a built-in metaphor that like you're chasing a 500-pound line uh, for the circle maker, it was this story about uh, Hone, the circle maker, who drew a circle in the sand and prayed for rain. Like you, that opening story to me has to grab readers by the shirt and shake them a little bit. Like give give them this organizing metaphor of here's what the book is about. And sometimes you can do it in title form. So mm-hmm. when the day is pretty self-explanatory, that yesterday's history. Tomorrow's mystery, you have to win the day. And even please, sorry, thanks is pretty self-explanatory. Like you only need mm-hmm. to be good at these three things. So I think um, when when I open a message or open a book, I put probably 50% of my time 
into that opening story or that that opening kind of two minutes because that's going to be the thing that I think keeps people reading through the end. So uh-huh. it may be history, it may be science, um, but I'm going to pull metaphors from different places uh, to try to frame the truth and, and then try to uh, write it or speak it. Hmm. Okay, and then uh, is it chapter outlines, first draft, etc.? Talk a little bit more once you've you sort of got a governing idea, a framing metaphor, uh, and then what happens? Well, I, I want to say that I, I confess to being a little bit more right brain than left brain. So outlining and organizing probably isn't my strength. But what happens, I call it, Carrie, and I'd be curious what you call it, but when I start writing a book, I call it the writing forest, and I kind of wander into the forest and see where the trail takes me, and I usually get lost, and I can't find my way back out, Mm -hmm. but eventually, Mm -hmm. eventually, I get some clarity that... um, I know then how to divide a book. So uh, for the circle maker, it was dream big, pray hard, think long, kind of these three uh, things. For win the day, you got to bury dead yesterdays. You got to imagine unborn tomorrows and you have to win the day. So Mm. you begin to find kind of categories. And so uh, the one thing I will say, and here's a, a little writing tip that might be worth the podcast that I write shorter chapters now because people feel like they're better readers. Like, whoa, I already finished the chapter and (laughs) I must be an amazing reader. So I Uh I literally, instead of 5,000 or 7,000 or 8,000 words, if I can do it in two or 3,000 words, in fact, Right now, even 10 years later, Draw the Circle may be the best-selling book right now. Um, It's kind of evergreen. And what makes it work, Carrie, is that it's 40 days. It's a 40-day prayer challenge, but each Mm -hmm. chapter is only about a 1,000 words. So it's like you can get in and get out in about 10, 12, 15 minutes. And so I, I think writing for a decreased attention span means shorter chapters and probably means a few more stories or illustrations to kind of keep readers on their feet, so to speak. Well, I I read your book last year to endorse it and then uh, reviewed it prior to this interview. And do you know the word count on Please Story, Sorry Thanks? Because I'm guessing it is significantly shorter than some of the other books. It is with great intentionality. We yep. wanted it yep. to be just around that 40,000 word mark. Mm-hmm. And it is. You know, it's weird because I do read quite a bit for this job. And I'm always thrilled when a book is less than 200 pages. And I know the pressure from publishers because I thought I was done at 45,000 words for At Your Best. And they're like, we need another 10. I'm like, but if it's a better book. Now I went deep and I found another 10. Uh, I think my initial draft was 80 and I cut it down to 45. But yeah, you're in this place where sometimes there's word counts and publishers like we're positioning you this way and the advance was based on that. I'm like, I think people pay more for copies sold than words consumed, but I don't know. I'm not a publisher. Um, (laughs) And your chapters are shorter too 
in Please Sorry Thanks, correct? They are. I, I knew that, you know, I had to kind of write chapters, get in and get out. And so for those who are who are writing books on the writing side, I also have found it so much easier to write shorter chapters because mm-hmm. those longer chapters kind of meander and you aren't sure how to start uh turn or finish those chapters. So I, there is something there that some of the best books I've read are just quick hitters. Like even like Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Like how can you unpack the attributes of God in a book that's like a quarter inch thick, but somehow <laughs> Tozer does it. Um, and uh, I, I will say one of my object- objectives going into this year, and this is more on the speaking side, is to talk less. Uh, I have a tendency hard. to overtalk, and I I, I want to try to um, communicate as concisely and make every word count. And less is more uh, when it comes to spoken word and written word. Mm. One of the things that always impresses me about your writing, because I do read a lot of books, is you have really unique stories. I mean, I read fairly widely. There's stories I've never heard. And often, you know, you're reading a book, it's like, oh, I know that story. Oh, I know that illustration. Oh, I know that cliche. Oh, I know that. And yours are always like, where do you find this stuff that that probably is related to your writing or your reading, I should say. But I wanted to ask the question just in case there were other methods that you used to try to find this wide variety of like really interesting historical scientific stories that honestly I've just never heard of, didn't even know it existed. I, I rabbit trail Carrie. So mm. if I read a really good book, um, what, one of my new favorites, I love Adam Grant. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and by, by the way, I'm, I'm reading more books that I disagree with that are really hard to read because um, they disparage some of the things that I believe in. But I really want to understand the thought process and why, why, why are you saying what you're saying? But all of that to say this, if I read a really good book, uh, I'm going to study the end notes and I'm mm-hmm. going to go back to their original sources and I'm going to read some of the books that they read to try to garner a little bit more information. So I, I just uh, love kind of reading in areas where I know next to nothing. Like if, if there's something, if, if someone mentions um, something that I don't know much about, like I'm going to research it. So re, um, reciprocal inhibition or reflexive antagonism. Uh, it's this idea. I was I was doing a bike century and I was having some mm-hmm. hip issues. Congrats and, on that, uh, by the way. That's huge. Well, thank you. Um, so we we have a guy, Pastor Marion uh, Mason, on our one of our campus pastors who ran track at University of Virginia, and he said uh, he brought up this idea, and so I started researching it. Well, uh, it's this idea that when your bicep flexes, your tricep relaxes. That, that muscles come mm-hmm. in combinations. Carrie. Think about that as it relates to the character of God. How do you understand the justice of God and the mercy of God? Well, mm. I think you do it by reciprocal inhibition, by reflexive antagonism. So I, I find ideas in 
physiology. And I'm like, oh, that that's a metaphor for what's happening over here theologically. So I, I feel like as a writer or a speaker, there are a lot of people that are so much funnier. And I'm a little jealous of that. Hmm. There are a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me. There are a lot of people who uh, know more words. Uh, there, there's always someone who's better at something. I think you have to find your voice. What's your your niche as a communicator? And I I really try to say old things in new ways. And the way that I do that is I cross pollinate. So I take something from history or science or biology or chemistry, and now now let's let's layer that. So so for example, um, in sweat there are 373 chemicals, I believe. And mm. they actually combine in a way that your sweat print, carry is as unique as your fingerprint and your eye print and your voice print. Well, then I think about the great commandment, love, like, love God with all of your strength, which, which to me is breaking a sweat for kingdom purposes. Mm. And think about it. Your sweat print is unlike anybody else. It's a sweet aroma. And, mm. and so then I just, I start kind of juxtaposing ideas and, and my brain gets a little jumbled at times, but for me, I'm an ideator. I love to learn. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And so I want to continue kind of shape shifting my brain in a way that continues to seek, ask and knock and uh, discover more and more of who God is. What would you say some of your best practices as a writer or communicator are? Like, and you can get very specific. Like you turn off your phone, you find a particular place, you eat a certain food, or maybe none of that. Those may not be any of your writing habits, but what, what kind of things do you do that tell you, hey, I'm in the zone? Yeah, I would say on the speaking side, if you pray through a sermon you prepared, it's no longer a sermon. It's a 30 or 35 minute prayer. Mm. And people may notice I occasionally end a message in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs> because to me, I've been praying for you for 35 minutes. So I would say prayer is a huge difference. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I have an ego like everybody else and I struggle, you know, I will say that the Grammys set me free. Uh, years ago, was watching the Grammys and thought to myself, imagine a country singer trying to do rap or vice versa. It'd be mm. silly, wouldn't it? Um, there are different genres of communicators. You have to know the way you're wired and you be you. Uh, exercise mm. your vo voice and communicate in your way. And it allows you then to to celebrate other communicators. So I think... Um, on the speaking side, that's a big mm -hmm. deal. On the writing side, you know, because it's a weakness, to me, uh, writing is a, a holy exercise. So I take off my shoes before I write, and you, you know this. And to me, that makes it holy ground. And I don't type on a keyboard. I worship God with the 26 letters of the English alphabet. I really, I really do. To me, I, I try to take captive every thought, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, and make it obedient to Christ. And, and when all is said and done, 
then there's something that's an offering that I give back to the Lord. And and then practically speaking, if I have some writer's block, um, I exercise to restart my brain or uh, a NASA study found that a 26-minute nap increases productivity 34%, but it also gives here, here. two windows of creativity. And so I'll take a nap. And, yep. and then I have two writing days in one. Um, and, and then occasionally I'll put on my AirPods and uh, music that does not have lyrics. Uh, if it has words, I'm in trouble. It'll distract me. But I'll occasionally put on the... Uh, I'm going to tip my cards here, uh, some of the Truman Show, show uh, soundtrack or The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, some of those songs that just kind of have this, and I put them on repeat, and I may listen to them 20 or 25 times, but somehow it gets me into a little bit of a zone. So you have yeah. to hack your own habits and reverse mm-hmm. engineer what, what gets you into a writing groove and, and then do more of that. Um, yeah. Do you have a particular word count or a number of hours that you will write? I mean, there is an argument that you've got three to five productive hours in a day, and then eventually your brain just kind of like drains out. Do you find that? Or can you go, you know, eight to four or seven to three and be fully productive in that window? What, What does a writing day look like for you? Well, I'm tempted to flip the question, Carrie, and ask you, (laughs) because it's still, isn't it still a little bit of a mystery? You have on days and off days. Yep. And, and Carrie, and this keeps us dependent on the Holy Spirit, I think, that you really don't know how a book is going to resonate until it gets on a shelf and people pick up and and read it. I've I've written books that I thought were going to blow up and they barely made a peep. And then other books that I'm like, yeah, it's all right, but it, it, it's unexpected. Same with sermons. So I, do you have a thought on that? Is it okay for me to flip the, the question? Oh yeah, you can flip the mic. I mean, to me, if I get a thousand half decent words out in a day, if I'm in a writing season, I've had a really good day. And then yeah. inevitably there's some, for me, that's morning. I'm a morning person. So by the time, if I get to lunch or two o'clock, and if it's to two o'clock, I have had a nap. I'm such a huge proponent of a nap and a few calories just to keep me going. You know, that's about all I got in me, unless I've got a deadline like right there, lean, and, and I don't like to work right up against the deadline. And so I find 500 to 1,000 words. That's really good. If I have an extraordinary day, it might be 1,500. Blogging is different. Messaging is different because I don't write out manuscripts. I outline ideas. And then I'm like, okay, I know what's going there. I know what's going there. I know what's going there. I kind of carry it in my head. That doesn't work for books because nobody knows what's in your head. They only know what's on the page. So you got to write out every word in crafted sentences. And so it's a little more challenging. So, you know, most of the writers I talk to, Mark, would say, yeah, unless you're under super tight deadline, this idea of I'm writing from eight till four, like Isaac Isimov uh, went from six o'clock in the morning till noon every day on a typewriter. And that was it. Then he was done. Hemingway, very similar thing. He says, you start early in the cold in the morning and by the time the sun warms up the room, you're about done. <laughs> then he was on to other things. I don't know. What, what is your theory on that? Well, or I think experience? you have to, yeah, you, one, you have to know your chronotype. 
Are you a morning or a night person? That's going to make you? a huge difference. I, I am a morning person. So in a writing season, I set my alarm a little bit earlier in the morning and I get a running start. And I love the fact, uh, just when I thought I, I couldn't like you anymore, Carrie, the fact our affinity for naps. Uh, I'm not oh, surprised. Here, here. Um, here, here. That's what way, I'm doing after ever, this interview. I'm going to have a nice if, little nap. If, if I ever them. ran for mm. office, uh, nationally mandated nap time. You don't have to nap, but a nationally mandated nap time would be one of the planks of my platform. I mean, they we would be a happier, healthier, kinder nation. Um, I, would I would say, um, here's one little trick of the trade. And, and this is, this is after, you know, probably writing 10 or 12 books. I'm such a perfectionist that I, I could spend two hours in a thesaurus searching for one right word. And so what I had to do is come up with an 80% rule that when I feel like I'm 80% of the way there, Mark, it's time to give it to your editor and let mm-hmm. them look at it. Don't, don't beat a dead horse. Um, good editing is bad. I edit, uh, good writing is bad writing. Well edited, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, that axiom. So I, I think that 80% rule, I kind of Jedi mind trick myself that, okay, That's good enough. Let's hand it off. And then sometimes you just have to let it rest for a day or a week or two. And then when you come back to it, you have fresh ideas. So it really is um, getting to know yourself. And and I'll also say this. It is it can be a discouraging and lonely process. What do you do when you get to that place where you're like, because, you know, there's Stephen Pressfield, right? Like, oh, this is amazing sort of the arc of writing a book. This is amazing. Oh, it's got some problems. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. What am I even doing? Just flush it down the toilet. It's awful. And then maybe it's not so bad. Actually, I think this is great, right? Or whatever that arc is. Do you go through that as well? And if so, what do you do to get yourself out of the trough? Yeah, both in the speaking and the writing. Uh, Uh, But I've, we've done this long enough. I bet, I bet you've had the same experience. It's the messages that you're really unsure of. And you prepared, but you're like, ah, this is not moving the needle for me. And you'll get up and preach it and the altar's filled. Mm -hmm. And then another message that you're like, oh, this one, uh, revival's probably going to break out right here, uh, right (laughs) Right now. And and it's one of those that just crawls over the pulpit and falls off. Um, You know, I I just think, again, done this long enough that there's something about the anointing, something about the Holy Spirit, something about that happens between my lips and people's ears or my writing and people's reading that the Holy Spirit is a huge part of this equation. Um, And I don't know why this just popped into mind, but you know, we run and own and operate a coffee house here on Capitol Hill. So I'd also say that Holy Spirit plus caffeine equals awesome. I like just putting <laughs> that that out there for uh, consumption. That uh, I, I really, I really believe. That um, can I share a theory of everything? This is a little off. Do it. Do it. I think the answer to every prayer is more of the Holy Spirit. And so you say, Mark, but we need more love. Absolutely. We need more joy for sure. We need more peace. Uh, You know where this is going. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
those are fruit of the spirit. So what we need is more of the spirit that produces more of the fruit. And so Mm. whatever it is that you're doing, I'm below average without the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit's help, I, I, I just think it's game on. And, mm. and so whether it's writing, speaking, leading, uh, the X factor, the it factor is the, the work of the Holy Spirit and that same spirit that hovered over creation uh, is hovering over us and continues to to bring order out of chaos. And so when I'm writing a book, sometimes it feels like uh, the darkness of Genesis 1. <laughs> like it feels like a black hole, but somehow the Spirit pulls out uh, His purposes. You get some words, you gain a little bit of momentum. When everything's said and done, uh, there's a book to show for it. Well, and one of the differences between amateurs and professionals is that you know, professionals do it even when they hit a wall, even when they get lost in the forest. You know, my analogy you asked me earlier, I didn't answer is it's less a forest, more of a swamp. I feel like I'm sinking and I can't grab onto <laughs> anything. What do you do? What is the hardest part of writing and content creation for you these days? And how do you get through it? Well, it's hard not going back to old ideas, Carrie. Mm. And so I do allow myself about 10% overlap. That There are some stories, some ideas that are too good to share once. And, and we know as leaders, you have to say it seven times for people to get it. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't want people to feel like they're reading the same book over and over again. <laughs> yeah, or so, hearing the same sermon. Yeah, But, you know, C.S. Lewis said every life is comprised of a few themes. So there are going to be themes that come through your writing, that come through my writing. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed we were sharing about the interview you did with Tim Keller. Well, Tim, there's going to be certain things that Tim says that I've heard that before, but I need to hear it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I just think you have to discipline yourself to find a healthy balance there. And uh, because if you if you stop uh, creating the future, you start repeating the past. Uh, mm. I, I think every leader, Carrie, needs five quotes that they quote all the time. One right. of them for me is R.T. Kendall. Sometimes the greatest opposition to what God wants to do next comes from those who are on the cutting edge of what God did last. Mm. And so... That, that keeps me humble and keeps me hungry. And it's weird. I'm wired in a way that I always feel like the next sermon, the next book, oh, this is the most important one. I've been doing this for a lot of years, but there's this, this unction or this holy urgency of this is, this is there's a lot at stake. Um, lives are in the balance. And so whatever I'm preaching, whatever I'm writing, uh, I'm, I'm really going to try to do it like uh, it's the, the last sermon. By the way, the last lecture, another one of those books that I love. Um, mm. And, uh, and so, by? oh, I, I don't know. The name escapes me. Okay, we'll link to it in the show notes. Last yeah. lecture. We'll figure that out. Yeah. Um, back in the day, and you and I have talked about this before, you used to have a blog. I was one of your faithful readers. And I always thought that, I still sort of have one, but I always thought that having a blog is like a testing field. You can test an idea. We kind of have social media for that now, but I'm wondering, you don't blog anymore. 
et cetera, et cetera. You write books. Is there a way that you test your ideas before you commit them to ink or commit them even to a weekend? Uh, and that could be online or offline so that you kind of know, oh, I thought this one was going to resonate. Didn't really resonate, but this one's really resonating. I just threw it out there as an aside and it kind of blew up. Like, do you have a way of testing ideas before you commit to them in speaking or writing? Yeah, I'm always beta testing. Hmm. So before I would speak at a leadership conference, I'm probably going to share those same thoughts with our staff. And how, how do they, how is it received? What, what is effective? Um, but by the way, I'm always going to go back and watch every sermon I preach and kind of reverse engineer myself. What, what could I have said better or differently or use less words? Um, so I'm always evaluating. Now, mm. when it comes to books, I do have to admit, I really don't go back and read them because, Carrie, you and I both know by the time it, it hits the shelf, you've gone through so many edits, maybe recorded in audiobook, that it's kind of old news to you by the time yeah. it comes out. Yeah. And so I really don't go back and read old books, but um, yeah. And I don't even know if that answers the question. You no, it does. Asking. So you have a beta. Do you ever test ideas on social where you'll throw out a phrase or that kind of thing just to see if anybody likes it, salutes, comments? Yeah, I I do. I For me, the blog was... It was a way to beta test, was a way for me to cultivate the writing craft in short form. Um, I, I also did something called a devotional, devotional oh, without the D. That. Yeah. Yeah. And I would take every message and I would go through the discipline of recrafting it for written form, which is not 100% different, but it's probably at least 7% different. And so, you know, you write a little differently than you talk. Um, and so those were disciplines. I just realized I didn't have the time to maintain a daily blog. And so really at its peak of popularity, um, I walked away from it. And that, that was hard. Uh, I'm not sure that my publishers loved that I did that, <laughs> but I, I felt like, you know, our kids were at that stage where they really needed their dad and I'm pastoring and writing and something's got to give. So at some point you got to prioritize. And, and that was one of the things that, that fell off for me. Well, it turned out okay in the end. Is there anything else about the writing process that we haven't covered that, you'd like to share? Wow. Um, we have covered a lot of ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Even if it's small, quirks, habits, tips, tricks, uh, things yeah. not to do, things you used to do that you stopped doing, anything along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that the, the key to writing a book for me is setting your alarm early in the morning. So I'm now, I'm putting myself in the place of those who want to write. Yeah. Um, it really does take the, the self-discipline of you got to produce a lot of content to get a little good content. And, mm -hmm. and then you've got to trust your instincts. 
So I've worked with wonderful editors over the years. Um, but once you get to book 23, you kind of have a writing style and a writing voice. And so you, you have to trust your gut a little bit. And, um, and I, I would also say, Carrie, that I try to write in a pretty punchy style. Uh, you know, a lot of parallelism, which might be a, a Hebrew uh, language mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. uh, pro leg depends on God, leg depends on you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, live for the applause of nail scarred hands. Just little, you, you need to really get good at the, the one liners that aren't superficial. There's actually a dimensionality to them that you can unpack, mm-hmm. but really learning to say things in a memorable way, I, I think uh, is so important. And, and that's what's amazing about Jesus and amazing about the parables. Most of them less than 250 words, but you hear them once and you remember them forever. Uh, the other thing I would say is like on the on the EQ, emotional intelligence front, like you, you have to engage your readers emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to occasionally get a laugh because otherwise 212 pages is a long book to read if there's not a chuckle here or there. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think you have to pull at the heartstrings a little bit. All of us, I mean, my counselor would say we're, we're 98% emotional. And uh, by, by the way, says, I'm just trying to get you one, 1% less emotional. We're not trying to get you a 50-50. We're just trying to get you 1% less emotional. And I love the way um, they say it, that uh, I'm just trying to change your programming a little. Just, and so in, in writing, I, I want to just say things that are one dial notch over, just to kind of get people to think and feel and question and uh and you don't have to agree with everything i write in fact uh yeah i don't agree with everything i probably wrote 10 12 <laughs> years ago i'm evolving and growing and hopefully all of us are well you know two thoughts number one you're right about emotional writing and i don't know where i picked this up but somewhere along the way i'm like good writing creates a response so if you're reading silently but you're reading through a story you should be able to see or hear a response in the reader. In other words, they're like going, or, (laughs) you know, or, uh, oh man, something like that, right? But you want to create a visceral response. And I haven't forgotten that. And it's different when you're writing. I think, like, I don't know about you. I'm envious of people who are funny too. And we've talked about that publicly here, had John Acuff on numerous times, who is hilarious when he talks. I'm not funny. I am funny, not when I script it, but if I'm just saying something off the cuff, and then often it'll surprise me. People start laughing. But I find in writing, I can write humorously better than I can speak humorously, unless it's off the cuff. And so in writing, I want to craft one of those every three to five pages, 10 pages max, where people either go, oh, gut punch or whatever. But then you mentioned editors. So I had, you brought me back to an experience I had not without your best, but didn't see it coming, where I had an editor, well-meaning editor, great guy, do the second final draft. And I read the book and I'm like, wait, I didn't write this. And I'm a quirky writer and I'm a quirky speaker. Those were my words. 
But the weirdness of my personality got shaved off. The sentences yep. got smoothed over and it almost felt like we didn't have chat GPT, but it almost felt like chat GPT did the editing on it. And it felt like generic writing. And I pushed back and they said, well, this is grammatically correct. I said, it's existentially boring. And I went back. <laughs> that was the aid in me. I'm not saying I'm healthy, yes. Mark. But I went back, found an earlier draft and I said, let's start over again and please keep me in it. Any thoughts on that? Have you ever had that experience where you got blunted, your voice got filed off on the edges? My whole reaction to what you just said is what he said. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, Carrie, Same way, that's it. Right? I'm, I could care less about correct grammar. In fact, sometimes <laughs> when I'm writing, like they, they wanted to say whom. Oh, I understand yeah. that's I understand that's grammatically correct, but I'm the guy that has to record the audio book. And if I say whom one more time, yeah, I, I mean it just sounds well, weird. You gotta follow it up with forsooth or something like that. Then yeah. you know. <laughs> so it, it <laughs> is funny how word. often um and again I've I've worked with some of the best of the best. And so this is this mm. is more kind of the early books, but yeah, I had to just, I would not accept their changes. Mm. And, and you have that right as a writer. Yeah. And I do think I want quirky. Mm -hmm. I want quirky Carrie. That's who I want. Yeah, well, that's what you um, got if you got me. It's kind of weird. Yeah. 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 And, and we want Mark to be Mark, right? And we want Acuff to be Acuff and we want other people to be themselves. Um, so you started to go there and I want to pick up on that advice for fledgling writers. Like you say, or a great majority of people would like to write a book or at least give it a novel try. What is, as a author who has published 23 books now, and I imagine are working or just finished your 24th. Is that right? Close. It's true. Because <laughs> we're recording this right after the Super Bowl. So there must've been another one in the works. Uh, what's your advice to fledgling writers, Mark? Well, the, the question I ask is, are you called to write? That, that to me is the issue. Because if you are, then to not write sounds to me like disobedience. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't worry about finding an agent. Don't worry about getting published. Do the hard work of getting thoughts and ideas into words and write a book. That's the hard part. The good news is self-publishing is so much easier now mm. than it ever has been. And most writers, that's how you're going to start. It's how I started. I self-published the, the first book and it did well enough to then open an opportunity for that second book. So mm. don't be afraid of just getting it into print. Prove to yourself that you can write the book and, and then leave the outcomes to God. Don't, don't focus on the, uh, the lag measures, how many books are sold. Focus on the lead measure. You, you do what you feel called to do and, uh, and then leave the results to God. And uh, I, I think that's a pretty good equation uh, for getting a, a book into print. So uh, another FAQ around here from podcast listeners is, so I've written my book, whether that was a published contract or self-published, it's out there in the world, but it's got no traction. Any advice 
And I mean, now you're at the point where when you release a book, there's just going to be devotees who buy it. You're almost, I don't know, are you, I don't want to say, are you guaranteed a certain number of sales? But you would probably say, okay, this is sort of the benchmark. And then we go up from there. Is that fair? Um, I I think so. You, yeah. you know, you, but then you always try to find new audiences. Mm-hmm. And so... Like I, I've been doing a little bit more speaking in business and leadership circles that are not necessarily pastors, although that's my tribe. So I love hanging with pastors, but I'm doing a few things that are a little outside the box. I would even say that, please, sorry, thanks. Like there's no way I can leave scripture out of it. There's no way I can leave God out of it. That's just not who I am. It's going to come through uh, very organically. But I wanted to write a book that would cross over in some ways that, please, sorry, thanks. No one can really argue with that. It's kind mm. of a universal message. It's what our parents taught us. But they're not just three magic words. They're biblical concepts. But I, I do try to find new audiences. and uh, But, Carrie, at the end of the day, uh, I, I write for my great great grandchildren. You know this. That to me, a book is a time capsule that I send to a generation that I may not meet. Why? Because I know next to nothing about my great great grandparents. Barely mm-hmm. know their names and mm-hmm. what they did. And I, I want a book to be a time capsule to future generations. And if anybody wants to read it in between, that's great. So that's kind of my mindset going into it. And I'm also cognizant that I think 97% of books don't sell 5,000 copies. So mm-hmm. that, that's the reality. But if you write one book and it impacts one life, are you willing to do that? Um, so I think it does come back to this idea of, are you called to write? And I think everybody has one book in them, Carrie. I really do. Mm. So when you were in the early days uh, with, you know, in the pit of a lion on a snowy day, et cetera, how did you get the word out? What marketing efforts? And I'm sure the blog was part of that marketing effort back in the day too. It was blogging and I started traveling and, you know, speaking at conferences, you you write a book and people think you know more than you do. (laughs) And all of a sudden you're a quote unquote expert. In fact, I'll say this, the further away from home you are, the more of an expert you are. (laughs) So I love, I love speaking on the, on the West coast. I'm, I'm such an expert on the West coast. Uh, and and then, and, and on that note, the older you get, the better you were. That's for former athletes right there. Um, so stay humble, stay humble. Um, but you know, I started traveling and speaking and then, you know, the rest of the story started traveling and speaking too much, uh, to the point that, uh, Laura said, this isn't what I signed up for. And you know what? It's not what, what I signed up for either. So I only do seven overnight speaking trips a year right now as a way of keeping boundaries intact. And, and part of that is that there is a large enough audience, but I, I strategically find ways to, you know, all, all th- this book, uh, I'll be on Good Morning America, uh, GM3, and uh, Faith Friday. And, you know, you find different ways to kind of, you get before different audiences and you just share the message. And 
And I better say this, there's such a fine line between self-promotion and promotion. Mm-hmm. And I just never want to be the guy that crosses that line. So I, I try to be really, really careful. At the same time, if it's a message that you believe in, I always tell authors, like, you got to get out there and yeah. and you, you have to promote it, be it social media or other places, because if you believe that this book is life-changing, don't hold out on people who might read it. So you, you got to believe in it and, uh, and you got to try to get it out there in what, whatever spheres of influence you have. And then here's the fun thing. You get it into one right pair of hands and it can explode. I've had many books do that. Uh, hmm. where what would be some examples? Whose hands did it get in and then it exploded? Well, I want to be careful not to name too many names, no, but people, but people with tremendous share. followings that, hey, right. I, I want this book in our entire organization. Um, or it's, it's kind of the book that they leverage for all of their coaches or life mm. coaches. Got and it. and what happens, Carrie? So that's is, almost B to B, so to speak, business to business, right? It is because mm-hmm. it's really hard to sell books one at a time. So one one little trick of the trade is you create a curriculum that then small groups. Now you're now you're ten to twelve at a time, mm-hmm. and then we try to create resources that we offer for free to organizations and churches. So you know, church might. I mean, church just bought. 1,200 copies of Double Blessing because they want to do something on generosity. Well, do you know how hard it is to sell to 1,200 individuals? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a long haul. So I think you find a way that you empower groups or teams or organizations. And when, when you do that, um, th- then you can sell books a little bit more than one by one. Yeah, so for people starting today, I want to give three choices. Uh, Traditional media like Good Morning America, which sometimes really wins you the lottery, but I know other people are like, and sometimes it didn't even make a dent, right? Depending on whether you get three minutes or 20 minutes or whatever you get. So traditional television, broadcast media, social media, podcasts. Like I'm blown away by the number of, of people now who like podcasts are the new talk show circuit kind of thing. So if yep. you were starting out today, and I mean, we've had a friendship that's gone on for years. And so of course, you know, when your publicist or whoever, I forget whether you texted me, it's like, hey, I got a new book. I'm like, you, you would never ask. So that's why I love having you. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, and, and sometimes people ask and it's fine. But those three, sorry, it's a long question, but traditional media like TV, uh, social media or podcasting, pick one, not two. Which one are you picking? Which one do you think best moves the needle? I'll do process of elimination. I'm not choosing social media because there's just so much white noise. There's too much. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Um, Awesome. Preach it. I think traditional media, um, that's a hard, it's hard to pass on a GMA or even a TBN or, or 700 club or focus on the fact, like those are tremendous outlets. But yeah. I, I would say my, my first choice, honestly, Carrie, are probably podcasts like this one where I know and, and you know I'm a devoted listener. I mean, every episode, 
and and I gen you generally get me through a bike ride or a, a workout, a marathon, so or a cent- centurion, yes. <laughs> or or rush hour traffic in DC. Uh-huh. Um, you get me through it, but you know I know that there are high caliber leaders on this podcast, and, and then occasionally, like I'll do a, a parenting podcast. Well, I love mm. that too. Like, mm-hmm. y- you know, I think, um, please, sorry, thanks works with parents. It works with leaders. Uh, so I, I think y- y- you just have to figure out, um, wh- where can your voice be amplified? And, and, and so on that note, Carrie, just thank you. I've discovered so many books, uh, based on the interviews that you've done and I'll immediately go order it. And then I, instead of just spending an hour with someone, I get to spend five or six hours. So that, hmm. that to me, I approach it as a writer the same way I approach it as a listener or a reader that I want to do further research. I have done the same thing with other people's podcasts. And obviously I've read the, for the most part, the books that come on here. Uh, first of all, thanks. I agree with that choice. And it sounds like the national media coverage is going to be sensational. And when I've had it and when I've done it, I've always been largely disappointed. And uh, I found that other podcasts, not every podcast, but some strategic podcasts, like I'll give you an example, being on Annie F. Down's show, boom, like instant spike in book sales. And so yeah. two things about this show. Number one, we hear from listeners. We hear from you all the time. It's like, you keep breaking my book budget. So apologies for that, <laughs> listeners. Uh, and we got to live in the tension and get an audible uh, you know, thing. And then you can do one a month for free for that subscription. But the other thing is the number of books that from well-known and un- unwell-known people that have shot to number one in their categories or like very high on Amazon, which is immediately trackable after being on the show, continues to astound me. And then for those of you who do a podcast, watch what happened here. I am very excited about Mark's book. We're going to talk about it for the last five minutes or so. But what did Mark do? It wasn't chapter one, Mark talked about this. Chapter two, Mark talked about that. You're going to do some of those interviews. But what makes this interesting is think about how much value you delivered to anybody engaged in the writing process, which is a lot of listeners around here. And as a result, they're going to be like, wow, Mark is incredible. I got a teaser for his book. Now we're going to go deeper. And I do that with 80 to 90% of my guests, particularly those that I know well. Occasionally I get somebody, it's like, okay, we'll go through the book because it's such a, a commanding idea or I don't know this person particularly well. Uh, any thoughts on that process when you guest on a podcast? Like, does that leave you disappointed that, man, we barely talked about, please, sorry, thanks. Although we've dropped it probably 15 times in this episode. No, I, I love it as a listener and as a guest because mm. it helps me put a book in context. Mm. Like, I, I feel like if I know an author, it's a more meaningful read to me. Yeah. In fact, yeah. you know, I read A.W. Tozer like crazy, The Pursuit of God, The Knowledge <laughs> of the Holy. But Carrie, it was actually reading his biography that gave context to m- much of what he wrote, which I won't, I won't rabbit trail on that. But what I love is you get to know a guest, you get to hear their heart a little bit. Yeah. And I, I don't need 
the cliff notes on a book. In fact, g- give me the big idea and that'll, mm-hmm. that'll help me determine whether or not to pick it up. And, uh, and, and just permission to speak frankly at the end of an interview. Yeah. Like I just love down to earth people. I love people that they just, um, it's genuine and it's authentic. That's who I'm most likely to go buy their book. Well, um, and wouldn't it be fascinating to, I mean, this didn't exist, but find a two hour interview with Tozer or John Calvin or John uh, Wesley and get the backstory? Like, yes, it really, it really would be because there's a backstory to every book and every author. And so I'm mm-hmm. always, I'm always fascinated by that. So I, I love the approach path that you take. Yeah. Or C.S. Lewis or Tolkien on the writing of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, maybe that's out there somewhere in the ether. I don't know, but that would be really interesting. You know, C.S. Lewis on how he writes or why he writes or his conversion. And we get uh, parts of that. But I do want to talk briefly about, um, please, sorry, thanks. So, you know, you and I were joking when you asked me to blurb it. It sounds like a kindergarten admonition, right? Like this, what your mom says. So come on. Yes. why write a book on such a foundational subject? Because I loved when we talked about, do you want to blurb the book? Do you want to do an endorsement? You told me what was behind it. Then I read it and I'm like, oh boy, this is a Trojan horse. Like, this is cool. Yep. Yeah. And I dedicate the book to my mom and dad because mm-hmm. they, they taught me these three words and they have to become a lifestyle. So n- nothing opens doors like a please. Mm-hmm. Nothing men's fences like a sorry. And nothing builds bridges like a thanks. It, it really is not complicated. If you're good at these three things, and we kind of talk about the talk about the science of sorry, the psychology of please, the theology of thanks, and go down a few levels on it. But really, if you get good at those three things, it, it's amazing how many problems will resolve themselves. And so it uh, not to under simplify, but you know our our words. Well, the power of life and death is in the tongue, and these three words create worlds. And the lack of civility that we have right now in culture, Carrie. Like I think this could be a solution. Could we get a little bit better um, at sorry? Because if we got better at sorry, then that would just open all kinds of doors. Uh, if we got better at thanks, um, it, it would make all the difference in the world. So I, you know, I kind of geek out on some things like uh, the the power of uh, pronouns. That when when uh, I pay attention to people's language, and and I know when I say pronouns like that, that then. Trigger, People trigger, think you trigger. could be talking about a lot yeah. of different things. What I mean by that is I listen to how often people say I and how often people say you. Uh, fascinating study in the book. Um, in, an FBI analyst who actually studies language, uh, insecure leaders use the word I a lot more than, ins- than secure leaders. Um, I, I want to be saying, you. I want to be saying we, not me, myself, and I. Yeah. And so that sermon there, I preached last week. <laughs> my well, email and, list. Yeah. 
And I, I want to be careful here because I love it when people who attend our church call it my church. But, you know, I never use that pronoun to describe National Community Church because I, I don't want to use that possessive pronoun. What I'm getting at is even little use of language um, has a lot to do with the way that we lead. And I dig into a little bit in, in, of that in the book. Well, and I think what really got me in, and it is scientific. I mean, you bring your usual anecdotes, stories nobody's ever heard of, a scientific research, psychological research into it. But it's the what's at stake is that with the, these are at the heart of civilization. If I can put it that way, those are my words. And what's making us so uncivilized right now is the absence of please, sorry, and thanks in everything from domestic relationships, marriages, parenting, family, friendships, civil discourse, political discourse, you know, that, that, that breakdown. And it's interesting, um, two, two last questions for you. You are one of those remarkable leaders who has managed to stay above the fray. And in previous interviews, we've talked about pastoring in D.C., like literally, Every four years, a whole bunch of people get fired and a whole new team comes in. And, you know, in the midterms, similar things. So you're dealing with a bipartisan crowd. You're not just gathering Democrats or Republicans. You are reaching Washington, D.C. and all of its diversity. So there's that. But you don't get dragged into the political discord, you know. And I, Mark, as I've known you and Laura, I mean, just people of incredible high personal integrity. So no scandal or anything like that. Do you think that this is starting to tug on what the church needs to do to, to stay above the fray or beyond the fray or out of the, the toxic dialogue that now characterizes public discourse? Yeah, there's no short or easy answer to that, Carrie. But since we already brought up uh, reciprocal inhibition, how about grace and truth? John 1.14, Jesus was mm. full of both. Uh, truth means, I'll be honest with you, no matter what, you don't have to compromise your convictions. And, and by the way, that's a hard thing not to do when you live in the capital of political correctness. Uh, <laughs> but then grace, grace means I'll forgive you no matter what. So truth without grace is hot sauce. Grace without truth is weak sauce. Mm. Grace and truth is our secret sauce. And mm. so we have four principles of peacemaking that I break down in the book. Listen well, ask anything, disagree freely, and love regardless. How do we live? How do we stand in the gap as peacemakers, grace givers, and tone setters? How, how do we in the words of Dr. King, not be the, the thermometer that just reflects room temperature. How do we be the thermostats that shift the atmosphere? Um, I, I think CEO, I just heard this about a week ago and can't remember who said it, hmm. but it stands for chief energy officer. That My, my <laughs> energy, um, and by the way, when you walk into a room, does the anxiety go up or down? That's a, oh, that's yeah. a key question. Great question. Um, you set the energy, and I think there's an energy to please, sorry, and thanks. That They're life-giving words, and a lot of the opposite is happening right now. And so um, the tongue is a powerful force, and if we could just sanctify the 
the tongue and our words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, words are x-rays. Jesus said that. So I, I think what I try to do is let's go a few levels down and make sure that we're walking the talk. Let's talk the talk, but let's also walk the walk with a please, sorry, and thanks. And if we do, it's going to open a lot more doors and mend a lot more fences and build a lot more bridges for the good news of the gospel to get a hearing. Can you become unoffendable? You suggest it in the book. And if so, you know, how does that work? Like, you got to be able to absorb a lot. Yeah, it's, it's one of my chief goals in life. And the only way is to have a really robust prayer life Mm. that let's pray for the people we love the most. And let's pray for the people we like the least. And (laughs) that then allows you to look at them eye to eye and the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. Um, It goes back to those two rules of life that everyone's fighting a battle. I know nothing about that gives me great grace for other people. It's that non-anxious curiosity like, whoo, you just blew up over something really, really small. So what in the world's happening? What happened in your past that caused that landmine to go off right now? And, uh, and I, I think it's that, that approach. Um, may our capacity for forgiveness be greater than our capacity for offense. And right now, people are too easily offended. And I, we won't deep dive this, Carrie, but part of the problem is a common enemy mentality that we demonize anybody who's not part of our in-group. And we've got to have a common humanity mindset that uh, all of us made in the image of God. And so all of my theology goes back to Genesis 1. And mm-hmm. that's, another, that's another podcast for another time. But that's our source code. You, you reverse engineer it, and it, it would resolve so many of our problems if we really understood uh, that, that uh, original intent and what God intended. Um, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. You bet. Mark, this has been incredible. I want to thank you. And for those of you who really enjoyed the writing part, this is an updated companion to episode 32. And yes, that is available on this podcast feed wherever you're listening to it. So uh, I'm sure we covered some different grounds, some different takes, but between the two of them, you now have a masterclass from one of the masters, Mark Batterson. Mark, new book is called Please, Sorry, Thanks, available everywhere you get books. And where can people track with you these days? Where are you active online? Yeah, Mark Mark Batterson, both Instagram, Twitter, uh, website is Mark Batterson. Of course, people can download a sample chapter, uh, get a few freebies, and uh, look forward to uh, hanging out with people in those venues. Well, I am so excited to be with you again. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm really grateful for you, for Laura, for all that you're doing and for your friendship. Told you that was going to be rich, and it was. That was awesome. And if you want more, I've got show notes for you at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 565. And uh, we also have transcripts there. We do those absolutely free. And the reason we do it free is because other kind sponsors 
take care of all the costs of this podcast. Make sure you check out Serve HQ. They are helping so many churches get through the volunteer crisis. And you can learn more at servehq.church. Streamlining and onboarding and training is so important if you do that poorly. Uh, things don't go well with your volunteers. You end up losing them or not keeping them. So go to servehq.church. And then I want to help you with my preaching cheat sheet. If you want to get better at preaching and you want to streamline the process so you can focus on what really matters when you're preparing your message, get it for free today at preachingcheatsheet.com. Next episode, so glad to have JP Pocluda back. He talks about preaching and reaching young adults. We go into ChatGPT and AI and a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt. The layer of protection is gone. And mm -hmm. so if someone's going to be on 60 minutes, it's going to be you. And so there's, as I drove <laughs> down 35, which is the interstate here, uh, moving from Dallas to Waco, it just felt like there was a, a covering that was being lifted off of me. And oh. um, that doesn't sound super spiritual, but that is just in my, in my fear and insecurity is what I felt in that moment. It just felt like, oh, I'm, I am walking out of, uh, uh, from beneath my, my protection. Oh, yeah. Did I mention we also talk about the Asbury Revival? It's going to be great. Also coming up, Will Gadara. So excited for this. He created the number one restaurant in the world. Uh, Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. We've got Henry Cloud coming back. Seth Godin, Paula Ferris, Horst Schultze. By the way, I'm recording that live April 26th. Stay tuned for details. You are invited. Kevin Kelly. Uh, who else have we got? Judah and Chelsea Smith and a lot more. And speaking of Horst Schultze, Come hang out with Horst and me in Atlanta, Georgia. We just got a few more weeks for you to get in on this. Registration is limited uh, and required. So if you're interested, it's absolutely free, but check it out at cnlp.live. That's cnlp.live. You can register today. Join us in Atlanta, April 26th. I'll be interviewing Horst Schultze live. Would love to have you for that live podcast recording. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. 